This podcast is supported by Audible. To find out how you can get a free audiobook of your choice just for trying Audible, check out audibletrial.com slash lead. This is Judah Pollack, and you're listening to Leader Lab. So who are you and what do you do? <laughs> I've been trying to figure out who I am my whole life, uh, which kind of is what got me into doing this kind of work. Because um, in many ways, leadership really is about who you are. Um, and really powerful leadership is, is truly knowing who you are and then truly knowing what it is that you want to do. And when you, when you know those things, when you are able to hold your own center, um, you are able to give other people a sense of stability and security. And you're able to give them a platform where they can perform at their best. And you can also gain trust such that you can inspire them to strive for their best. And so it was basically my own searching for who I am that led me into this work of really helping people reflect on what it means to be a leader. And I've ended up doing this um, a lot out here in the tech world in Silicon Valley, where you work with people who are, you know, 14 (laughs) or, or 26 if they're ancient but trying to get them to first begin those questions of who they are and what it means to be a leader. Uh, I've been doing it now with the United States Army, anywhere, starting with uh, people in the middle, majors, going up all the way to the generals and all the way down to the privates, uh, working with one private who everyone called Window, and I never found out why they called him Window, but it was a heck of an experience trying to sort of inspire Window to <laughs> really figure out who he is and why he's letting people call him that. <laughs> that sounds like the perfect title for a memoir uh, or something. Inspiring window, right? And you. Uh... <laughs> but uh, mem- memoir aside, maybe you've got time for a memoir later down the road. The uh, the <laughs> the new book, not a memoir, although in parts it might be, uh, is the chaos imperative: how chance and disruption increase innovation, effectiveness, and success. Uh, co-authored with. Ori Brofman of the Starfish and the Spider and Sway and Click and all those sort of things. But I'm curious, Judah, for you, what led you to not just this partnership with Ori in writing this book, but what led you both to want to write these ideas about chaos down? Uh, well, neither of us really come out of a traditional business background. Um, Ori did go to Stanford's uh, graduate school of business, but he was a peace and conflict studies major at Berkeley before that. Uh, I am your typical uh, liberal arts student, all about the humanities, graduating without the ability to get a job or earn a living type of thing. And so I found myself falling into the business world through film and narrative, which I had studied and done a lot of and played around in the independent film world. And what I discovered was that if you look at every any organization you go into, if you just look at it as a story, as a narrative, and then you look at all the people in that organization as different characters, you are able to get a very fresh and very uh, deep understanding of that organization, what makes it tick, where the problems are, where the people that are causing problems are. And from that perspective, because it's a story and because it's people, you can't be highly, highly rigid in how you try and organize. You can't be highly rigid in how you try and affect change. It's, it's more fluid than that. You're dealing with people in their emotional states. You're dealing with their human dynamics. And you can ask them to leave those parts of themselves at the door when they come to the office. But there's a funny little thing called the unconscious. 
And very often what we see in dysfunctional organizations is really the unconscious at play. And so if we don't try and engage the unconscious of the organization, if we don't try and get people to be a little more aware of themselves, you're just kind of moving deck chairs around in the Titanic. And so when you go into a world like typical corporate America or the United States military, which is so hierarchical and so focused on everyone knowing their exact role and checking for everyone's status, to turn around and say, you know, we really need to look at this as a story and open this up to who you are as a person, that can feel very chaotic to a lot of people. And so that's why the word came out. It's chaos. From a technical point of view, the book doesn't really talk about chaos. It really talks about complexity. But the emotional experience of this for people in a very hierarchical world is that it's very chaotic. It's very unpredictable. And that's because it's being very honest about that you're dealing with human beings and you're dealing with minds. And that's really the most potent part of the argument from the book is that from the 20th century, we had an industrial model where we were managing bodies. And you had to keep product moving down the line as these bodies produced the product. And that we've now moved into a knowledge economy, right? So we've gone from producing stuff to producing knowledge. And when you produce knowledge, you're using your mind much more than your body. And you have to manage minds now. And managing a mind is completely different from managing a body. And that, too, can start feeling like it's a little chaotic. But it's, it's where we've come to. You know, I, I found myself in that debate uh, last week. I was at the Academy of Management meetings, a bunch of management scientists, right? Which is, in and of itself, I mean, we at Leader Lab, we're all about taking an empirical, evidence-based approach to leadership, innovation, and strategy. Yet at the same time, leadership as a field and management as a field is sort of like the liberal arts of business. Uh, but at the same time, what we were talking about was is the shift from um, industrial work to knowledge work and, and what you said from managing a body to managing a mind means a lot of the research, a lot of the theories that are built up around motivation, around performance management, etc., they were done on an, kind of an old system. And that new system, we're still sort of uh, figuring out. And to your point, it, it, it feels more like com- it is actually complexity, but it feels more like just straight chaos. And, and what's interesting is that I think one of the reasons it feels like chaos is because, as you said, that the, the studies and the, the models we use are from a different time, from a different context. We're looking through a different frame now. And that's why when I'm um, doing research and I discovered this thing called the default mode network, I got incredibly excited because it suddenly was putting more structure and science around what felt like a chaotic process. And the default mode network is this group of regions in the brain, there are about 10 of them, and they're midline. So just put your head like right on top of your head, and you've pretty much got where these sections are. And they're, they're networked together, but they're only working in full mode when you kind of space out. <laughs> so here we have the, the counterintuitive you know, conundrum for a manager. So if I really want an, in, an innovative solution to come out of my people, I need to be okay with them, quote, unquote, wasting time. Because the way our brains actually work, not our bodies, but our brains, is that we take in all this information. We're working really hard on a project, and we're we're focusing on it, and we get stuck. It happens all the time. And then we just try and power through because we're at work. We have a job. We have to show that we're working, justify our time. The problem is the way our minds actually function is when we hit that wall, we need to walk away from the problem. We need to do things like watch a bad movie or go on a hike or take a nap or just go help somebody else on their completely unrelated project. We have to literally 
just turn our brains away from whatever the issue was. And then all of a sudden, this network turns on. And this network is made up of these random different parts. You have your autobiographical memory as well as episodic memory. So just those random memories you have. You have error prediction and future forecasting. So you have past and future kind of mixing in together, doing pattern matching. Your limbic system gets involved, and some of your emotional reactions are being brought in, plus your inferior parietal lobes, which are the part of your brain that take the information from your senses, like from your hand, the physical sensations, and actually translates them into the abstract signals that your brain can read so that we can understand what the world is. And so if you think about that, right, that there's a part of the default mode network that is connected to your senses, and then you think about how many stories there are of innovation happening when somebody's doing something physical, falls on Newton's head, right? Or Archimedes is stepping into the bath. And you can see, you can literally imagine the apple hits Newton's head and the information falls into his inferior parietal lobe, which sets in motion his default mode network. The apple falls, he imagines other things falling from his youth, from the future predicts and sees, oh my God, the planets are doing this, and all of a sudden the theory of gravity starts to and then it's presented to him by this, this unconscious process. And you find these geniuses, quote-unquote, often talking about this. There's a great quote by Einstein about it, where he's like, the knowledge comes to me in a very intuitive way. I can't tell you how I logically got there. It just shows up. Then I backfill the logic, but it just shows up. And this idea that the innovation is just going to show up when we're wasting time, that's what's so hard for people to get their heads around, but all the research points in the same direction, that that's what's actually going on. And so if you actually want your your employees, your workers, your partners to be as innovative and in- interesting as possible, you have to build in time for them to actually be wasting time, for them to be not on task. Hmm. And you know, and I think it's funny on the creativity side, we've known this for a little while in that sort of phenomenon of incubation. But what's amazing is that neuroscience is sort of telling us, here's what happens, here's what's actually going on in the brain when you're in that not on task. And you know, it's I think it's hard for a very um, Taylorism, scientific management uh, steeped field to actually embrace this idea of wasted time or embracing kind of chaos. But it's but it's absolutely vital. And, and to that end, you guys have sort of structured the book in a way of like baby steps or at least three elements that you have to put in in to kind of cultivate this chaos. And I wonder on some level that's kind of an attempt to impose structured sort of chaos in a sense. But I wonder if we could talk about those three um, elements in turn, the white space, unusual suspects, and organized serendipity, not just because they're the elements you have to have um, in order to be able to leverage and, and grow and make your people more innovative, but on a, in an ironic twist, they actually make it sort of make it possible to take a structured approach to implementing chaos. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I want to be clear that the idea is that it's not, to have your people just wandering around all day waiting for lightning to strike. Um, there's actually a tremendous amount of discipline and work because you have to have been focused very, very laser-like on whatever you're working on. It's just understanding that when the, t- the way you're actually going to get the paradigm shift, which is the innovation you're looking for, that moment is going to come in unstructured time. So we're try- you're just trying to insert enough um, tolerance of unstructured loose time to allow these moments to happen as opposed to it being all unstructured, all loose and variable. So the first one we talk about is white space. And white space has a number of definitions in the business world, right? Some people say white space is the sort of the hidden markets, the in-between markets that people haven't found yet. 
and that's the sort of the external view of white space. There's a more internal organizational view of white space, which are the spaces in an organization where nobody really seems to have authority, and yet there's sometimes there's the spaces you have to go into in order to really step forward and make something new happen. There's a great story. I can't remember what company the guy was at, but I think it was a utilities company, and he had to literally reach out to all these different partners and different vendors to raise enough money to get the new grid built that the company needed, but there was nobody in authority to actually get it done, so he stepped into that white space. And both of these are good examples of that idea of an open space where there isn't necessarily a, a given goal or a leader in place. There's a hierarchy in place. The way we use white space in the book is that it's a white space internally to yourself. It's a white space for your own mind, for your own brain, so that your default mode network can actually turn on, so that your brain actually has a moment to integrate all the information it's been taking in and then distill it down into a deep insight. And we all know this experience, like when you, you, when you say, I need a vacation, <laughs> or that feeling everybody has when the weekend is coming. We did not evolve to just stay on task this much and for this long. It's only been 100 years, <clears throat> pardon me, since children have been expected to just sit still in school for eight hours a day, right? 100 years ago, 150 years ago, 90% of the country was agrarian. People were outdoors all the time working and farming. And now all of a sudden, in just a short span of time, we expect all our children to sit still. And now it's coming around and it's kind of, you know, biting us because a lot of kids can't sit still. And so we're diagnosing them as though there's something wrong with them, but that's not really the case. The problem is we didn't evolve to sit still for that long. And so now the studies have come out that unstructured recess is vital to how well our children perform in school. And it literally, it's not gym class where there's a, there's a, there's a leader and you're in structured games. It's literally the unstructured time on the playground where kids have to figure out for themselves how they're going to play. They come back in from that, and not only are they paying better attention and doing better in school, but they've also learned incredibly important social skills like negotiating with one another. They've learned how to engage in difficult social situations when they disagree with one another. And they're finding their way through this. And these are things you can only learn when things are slightly unstructured. From a leadership point of view, the greatest leadership learning points are always when you're forced into a situation. You have to take control of it, and you don't really know what you're doing. <laughs> and that's when you learn the most. I had a wonderful story told me by a man, Henry Lipmanowitz. He was... Um, a very important executive at Merck in Europe for many years. And he said his first management job, he's French, his first management job was in Sweden. And he said it was the greatest thing that ever happened to him because he was forced to ask everybody what was going on because it was literally a foreign culture. But what it taught him was that every time he took a new job as a leader, he had to treat it like a foreign culture, act like he was in a foreign country, and ask the locals what the customs were. And by doing that, he was able to actually find out what the culture of the group he took over was and how to work with them and then how to slowly make them better and change them. But it was by going in and not knowing what he was doing that he learned the lesson. And I think we have a real fear of failing. We have a real fear that, that we always have to be on top of everything. And in fact, if we can step into the white space and admit, I'm not really sure what I'm doing, but I'm wide open to learning, those can be some of the greatest leadership experiences we have. No, I I totally agree. And I think you're exactly right. Even from a leadership perspective, we're kind of too often taught to just, you know, f f almost fake it till you make it and look like you have the right answer, even though the, the genius kind of lies in stepping back and going, let's figure out what's going on here, because I'm not entirely sure. 
Exactly. And the best leaders ask the best questions. Hmm. That's good. That's like and, that's that's a tweetable quote from the podcast right there. There you go. We got a tweetable, damn it. Uh, but it's true. They they are always the ones asking the best questions, but we have this the same way um giving white space to your employees feels like they're not being productive. Being a leader who asks questions, you feel like, Oh, I look like I'm not in charge. I look like I don't know what I'm doing. Hmm. And and again, going all the way back to the beginning, if you have a really solid sense of who you are, you don't fear asking questions even when you're in charge. Hmm. Now that's a, and it a, makes you a far better leader. That's a really good point. Now I, I wonder because the you guys the book tells the story of your attempts to implement this in one of the probably one of the more rigid, one of the more traditional great man theory of leadership type places ever, and that's the the U.S. Army. But I wonder if from from your attempts to roll out this kind of structured white space and this um, structured chaos almost or complexity. Um, what lessons there are in your rollout to the U.S. Army for for leaders, for middle managers, aspiring leaders, and how do you get started in an organization bringing this white space in? Yeah, it's an interesting question. Um, the Army, it, the Army is such a tough nut because, as they say, their job is to manage violence, and they, you know, it's probably one of the only organizations I can think of where you get hired and there's a chance they will send you and you'll get killed. And that sort of underlies everything that happens. So they have a very hard time letting go of the discipline and the structure because they feel it keeps people alive. And that's very hard to argue with, <laughs> especially if you, especially if you haven't served. Um, so that's the other part that's difficult. When you go into the army and you haven't served, and now that Ori and I have served, there's always a, a, there's a level of skepticism that comes involved, that comes into that. What I have found is that there are every organization talks about the same problem, which is the problem of the middle, right? And I, I have listened to two-star generals talk about how they can't get anything done. And you would think in a hierarchical organization like the Army, a two-star general could just snap their fingers and something would happen. And they have the same problem, the problem of the middle. And what happens in the middle is that people stay there for a really long time, right? So in the Army, it's, you know, you can be a captain for 20 years. You can be a major for 10, 15 years, lieutenant colonel. You can get stuck for a really long time. And what happens is you do the same thing over and over again. And we know from brain studies that if you do the same thing over and over again, your neuroplasticity goes down. Your ability to create new patterns goes down. Your ability to draw new grooves, new connections in your brain is seriously hindered. The way you actually get the middle to start buying into something new is you don't hit them face first with the new thing. You have to get their brains moving first in general. And so it really has to be a larger rollout, which is you have to start by getting them to just do something new in the first place. And there's going to be pushback because a lot of these people are sort of like, look, this is what I do. It's a good job. It doesn't stress me. I'm done. <laughs> and they don't want that, that push. It's you know try, trying to learn a new language when you're in your 30s, 40s, 50s. It's that kind of like, wow, this is difficult. My brain is not laying down the tracks. But the studies show that we, well, our ability to, to lay down new neural pathways can be hindered and can be difficult. We can, we can bring it back. It's not that we're shut down. So the easiest thing to do is to start by taking your middle and getting them to do new things. 
And that can be, you have to know your culture to do that, right? I can't pull something off the shelf and be like, so take them to karaoke. That might not work. <laughs> you got a room for, you know, you got an office full of introverts. I don't suggest that. Um, but it's looking for something that's kind of new and different. And this is sort of where the idea of unusual suspects comes in. And unusual suspects is very easy to misunderstand. It's not about bringing clowns in. It's not about bringing crazy people into the mix just for the heck of it to see what happens. Because that can be very destructive and incredibly disruptive from an emotional point of view. What makes the person unusual is simply that they work in a different field. They look at the world differently than you do. So a great example of that comes out of um, Detroit. Not Detroit, I'm sorry. Dearborn, Dearborn. Sorry about that. Dearborn. The, the hospital there, they hired to head up their hospital the former head of Ritz-Carlton Hotels. Now, on the surface, you're thinking to yourself, that's bizarre. What does a hotel manager know about running a hospital? But you dig a little deeper in what you find, and this is really the key to bringing in an unusual suspect, is what the hospital and the hotel share is a core value about taking care of people but they look at it from a different perspective. So by finding someone who shared their core value of taking care of guests, if you will, but who did it in a completely different world, a completely different culture, this hospital in Dearborn was able to fundamentally shift how they did what they did. One of the first things this man did was he had every room, every hospital room had a folding metal chair in the corner. And the doctors, when they came in, opened the chair and sat down and got at eye level with the patients. And this created a huge difference in how patients related to their doctors and trusted their doctors. And it created a huge difference in the doctors and how they saw their patients. They booked it ahead of time. So when you came in, your room was ready as if it were a hotel. There was no waiting forever in the emergency room. So you had this horrible beginning. There was no giant wait for admin. There are all these little tweaks that came from the hotel industry that turned around and gave this hospital the highest satisfaction ratings of any hospital in the country. And that's the idea of bringing in this unusual suspect. Now, it was hard on people because they had to lay down new neural pathways. And this is one of the things going on in healthcare right now is a lot of hospitals are trying to switch to ACL, accountable care organizations, where the, the idea is not to get people out of the hospital as fast as possible, but it's to get them as healthy as possible so they don't return. Now, that's a huge cultural shift, and you've got the middle that doesn't necessarily want to make that shift in how they're going to behave. And so it's about first shaking up their paradigms that aren't necessarily associated with their work, but just getting their brains more open, more alive, more new, and then bringing in the new change. So the first thing to do is really up the neuroplasticity when you're dealing with the middle. And that's really what we tried to do with the Army, was up the neuroplasticity by having them do these interesting things called liberating structures, which are fascinating ways to run a meeting where it's not just someone at the head of the table with an agenda, but instead it's the whole group getting involved through these different uh, structural systems that allows everybody's voice to be heard, everybody to participate, and really fascinating new things come out of it. And from there, they're able to then start seeing things differently. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, it's it's um it's simultaneously exciting and, and also kind of depressing because it's like oh you know there's a, there's a structure there's a way we can do it we're just gonna have to rewire how your brain works. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm I'm 
I'm totally kidding. One of the things we know is that the brain is a surprisingly more fluid and plastic mechanism than we think it is. We just happen to love inertia, and that's that exact problem of the middle that you're you're thinking of. We just we love inertia. Um, but still, if you want to get started in that, if you want to bring your people or yourself a lot more innovative, uh, the Chaos Imperative is a fantastic book uh, for that, with some awesome stories of truthfully. The, the reason I wanted to talk about the army a little bit is if you can uh, implement some of these ideas inside an organization like the army, then your your for-profit business or your non-profit social uh, change organization, you got no excuse, right? So these are people that cling. <laughs> these are people that cling to discipline um, for their life, literally, and you're just doing it for your comfort. So um, check out the KS imperative for for that reason. Now, Judah, I want to switch if it's okay. Talk. A, we talked about the book, but I want to talk about you a little bit and ask you a couple questions. Uh, first of all, what are you reading now? <laughs> that is a great question. Um, I am reading, oh God, what am I reading? I'm reading a couple of things. So a friend of mine wrote a book called Red, Hot, and Holy, A Heretic's Love Story. Her name is Sarah Beek. Um, and it's really a memoir of her own spiritual journey. And it's really been absolutely fascinating. Uh, she, and I've known her for a while, but I never knew any of this. Which is, you know, it's kind of amazing. It's almost like reading your friend's diary, but you've been given permission. Um, but it, it's really fascinating. She's talking a lot about mystics and their own experience of trying to understand um, their place in the world and their place with the divine. And it's, it, it, you wouldn't think of it as a leadership book, but going back to the idea of really trying to know yourself and ground yourself deeply, um, this book kind of does a lot of that. It's been really... It's been really fascinating. Um, and again, it's sort of an unusual suspect, not something I would expect to be reading, and yet it's, it's actually shifting how I see things in my line of work, even though I wouldn't think of it that way. Uh, I'm also reading this book called Ingenious by Tina Seelig. She's a professor at the D School at Stanford, uh, the design school. And it's, it's also a fascinating book. Just all of, some of the stuff we've been talking about, how do you make people and how do you make your organization a more creative thoughtful place? How do you really bust people out of their paradigms and get them to see the world in a, in a new way? Um, and I recently finished The Kite Runner, which the story of Afghanistan, which is a truly, really beautiful book. Um, really something that I, uh, you know, it's not often when you read and tears come to your eyes, but this book kind of made that happen. And it's been, a, it's been kind of joyful to read that. Yeah, no, it, it sounds it. No, it, it's fascinating to me. I mean, uh, the more I do these interviews, uh, the more I see that people don't tend to just, even the people who write strict business books tend to read from a variety of different perspectives. And, you know, that's the, more and more the case for that. You know, some, somewhere out there, there's this really good TEDx talk about why liberal arts education matters. And that, you know, is kind of the case for it uh, again. Are you talking about my talk? I am. I was plugging your. I, I was plugging your talk. You didn't even. Uh, you didn't even realize it. And oh my to, God. I, and, I know. I'm horrible. I got to work on it. And to our to our listeners, it's a, Thank it's, a you. it's an awesome talk. You, I, I highly encourage you to check it out. It's a great great TEDx talk. You know, I'm a, I'm a little biased around TEDx events. Um, you know, towards my own talk, but this one is also <laughs> this one is also pretty awesome. So I encourage you guys to check that out. And then, so we have the TEDx talk, we have the book, we have the work with the army. But w what's on the horizon for you? What are you looking forward to uh, in the near future? Um, I'm actually there are two things. One, I'm doing some work at Stanford Stardex Incubator, uh, which is a bunch of young bucks and uh, does, I guess. <laughs> who um, are all 
taking a little break from school to try their try their hand at these ideas they have for their companies. And I'm there to sort of help in terms of mentoring their leadership. So they, one of the things that happens with a lot of these startups is people have an idea, they love the idea, they have a lot of get up and go, and then running the company is <laughs> a skill set they haven't really thought about. Working with their partners is a skill set they haven't really thought about. Working with their investors or their uh, mentors, these are things they haven't really had a lot of experience with. Corporations, for you know, for whatever ills they may have, they, most of them do a really wonderful job training, helping with personal development, helping people really reflect on and learn how to be leaders. When you're in the entrepreneurial world, you're on your own. Nobody's giving you those classes. And so I've been doing work down at Stanford with some of them to try and work on if this is going to be a, a big new business model, how do we then incorporate these kind of leadership awareness styles for them. And so I've been doing a lot of work with them on that. And I've also started work on another book. Um, This one is going to get even more into the neuroplasticity and more into the idea of how our brains work and what are the things that then get in the way of us being more innovative and how we can actually, what we can do to lay down new neural pathways to make ourselves uh, far more innovative than we are. The idea being that we, our brains actually have an innovative engine built in. Uh, we just very often don't listen to it. And there are reasons for that and getting into what those reasons are. Oh, that sounds, that sounds fascinating. And, and we're, you're already, consider yourself booked uh, to be on that show when that to be on the show when that comes out uh, for sure because it's that's right up our alley that's some of the themes I touch on in, a, in my own book but anything that kind of blends that and teaches the lessons of applications of science and actual practice research and practice we're all over it whether it's leadership innovation or strategy and and I should say not to get too focused on the new book because the chaos imperative is out now it does exactly that uh, and it's a fantastic read so I encourage everybody to, everybody to check that out. Judah, thank you so much for joining us inside the Leader Lab. Thank you for having me. This is wonderful. 